Welcome to Above the Noise, a podcast at the intersection of faith, race, and reconciliation. And I'm your host, Grantley Martelli. My guest today is Dr. Joel Pearsall, the president of Northwest Nazarene University in Nampa, Idaho. Northwest Nazarene University is a Christian liberal arts university under the auspices of the Church of the Nazarene. As a liberal arts university, the institution faces many of the challenges of any institution of higher learning or state university, as well as those challenges of being affiliated with a Christian denomination. Dr. Pearsall has been a friend for many years, and I sat down with him in his office to have this conversation about leading in difficult times with a lens on faith, race, and reconciliation. Hey, Joel, welcome to our our podcast. It's good to have you here today. Well, thanks, Grantley. It's a joy to be with you. It's a joy to be here back on campus. It's been a while. It has been a while. (laughs) You need to be back on campus more often. (laughs) I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. We've been planning this for a while. And let's begin with, give us a little bit of your story, you know, where you were born, um, your journey to to becoming the president of the university. Um, I was born in Ohio, lived in Yakima, Washington, but moved from there um, about when I was four and a half, then to Syracuse, New York, and from Syracuse on to just south of Boston, Quincy, Massachusetts which I call kind of my formative growing up years. Uh, We were there six years, as I recall. And then here to Idaho, Um, moved from Boston to Nampa Hmm. in 1973 when I was in high school. That was a little bit of culture shock and uh, ended up graduating from high school here, attended college here at Northwest Nazarene University, then Northwest Nazarene College. And uh, and then went from here to grad school, uh, Willamette University College of Law. So you became a lawyer. I did. Um, I'm trained as a lawyer, and um, following law school, clerked for one of the justices on the Idaho Supreme Court for a bit, and then ended up back at a, a law firm in Salem, where I had clerked while I was in law school, and um, was there eight or nine years, um, as first as an associate and then as a partner. That's great. Are you married? Have any children? I am married to Nikki, who I met here in Idaho. Uh, she was born and raised here in Nampa. And we have three sons who are all grown. And um, as of this January, all three are married. So let's get back to, to your story. <laughs> you, you went into law practice for a number of years. Yes. And... Now you're the president of a university. So how did how did you go from a private law practice to university president? Yeah, um, many of us are still trying to figure that out. I had practiced law for several years, and um, over the course of several months, got the sense from the Holy Spirit that um, I was supposed to be done practicing law. It wasn't terribly rational. Um, and I resisted for several months, but God seemed to make that clear. So when I left the law firm, um, I actually went to work for a local Nazarene church in Salem, Oregon, um, as their administrative pastor, and I served there for about four and a half years. Um, 
near the time, about the last three years I was in the law firm, and then continuing while I was at the church, I was on the board here at Northwest Nazarene University. Um, so I was serving my alma mater in that way. And then um, there came a day when the vice president for financial affairs here at NNU, who had been my major prof when I was a student, mm-hmm. when he gave notice that he was going to retire, a, f- a couple of folks here at the university suggested that I pray about applying for that position. There were no guarantees or anything like that, but um, did sense an openness that I ought to at least um, be available. So applied and ended up uh, coming to NNU in January 1 of 1999 as the vice president for financial affairs. I served in that role until summer of 2008 when, um, as we went through a leadership transition here at NNU, I was asked by our new president to consider shifting um, over to serve as the vice president for university advancement what we now call external relations. So alumni relations, community relations, um, and fundraising. Mm -hmm. And so I served in that role from 2008 until 2015. And um, in 2015, the board asked that I step into a gap that had occurred to serve um, on an interim basis as the president. And uh, that seemed to be the the right thing to do at that moment, but then the board did come back a bit later, asked if we could have a conversation about um, kind of taking the interim perspective off of that, that. and so here we are today. How long has that been since you've been president? So I think we're about six and a half years in. It'll be seven years in July or June of this year. You're following the tradition of presidents because your dad was president. <laughs> I, I met your dad. I came to school. I met your dad. Okay. And, uh, and he, he was here yeah. as president. I think Wiley, had, was Wiley the president before him? Riley. Riley was the Riley. president. Riley. Yeah. Him, Dr. Yeah. Riley had been the president, um, I believe, and in his longest serving president. Yeah. And that was the reason why, when I was in high school, our family moved from Boston to Nampa okay. uh, for my dad um, to serve in the role of as president of Northwest Nazarene College. So it's, a, it's an unusual story. Um, one of my sons with a smile on his face refers to it as the family business. Um, I'm not sure that's very couth, um, but it is interesting the way that I have ended up back here. Well, he, that may mean that he may be thinking about becoming a university president, too. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. But I remember when I met your dad because I had just come to, I was here coming from the Caribbean, one international uh-huh. student, and I was actually walking in front of this building from the student center going okay. towards the library, mm-hmm. and he was coming from the opposite direction, and we were right in the corner there, uh-huh. and I saw him, and he just walked up to me and put his hand out and said, hi, I'm you know, Dr. Pearsall. He said, you must be Grantley. I said, how do you know who I am? He says, <laughs> Irvin Lear told me about ah, you. okay, yeah. <laughs> you know? And now... And that's how we met and, yeah. and started talking to him then. I can't remember when I met you, but I remember hearing about you from Irvin Laird and 
from they met your dad and your mom. They had us over for dinner. They used to have the international yes. students over for yep. dinner yep. at their house, and we always look forward to that because anything not to eat in the student center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I always have fond memories of your mom and dad. Yeah, yeah. Was, they were great people. I was very fortunate to have the parents I've had. And dad and Irving Laird had a long um, relationship that started at Eastern Nazarene College, oh, yeah, where yeah. they both attended. Oh, okay. And so they knew each other a long time before they ended up together here at NNU. And uh, so the Lairds are dear friends. Yeah, I, I don't remember when we first met, but it, it's, it's been a while ago. I, I can't remember if it was in, in relation to your dad or if we met separately. Yeah, I don't but, recall either. I do know that we've known each other for <laughs> several decades, but I don't remember the first meeting. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was trying to remember it, too. I would say, when did we actually first meet? And, and I, I can't put a date on Anyhow, I'm privileged to know you. So what are some of the major changes that you've seen in the university since you've been here to, yeah. to up to today? I mean, you can start from being president or when you came in your first role in financial Sure. Well, there have been a lot of changes over the course of the last 23 or so years, certainly. Um, a lot of changes in the physical campus. Um, we have had for many years a long-range campus master plan, which has um, been really helpful as we have uh, developed the campus. And one of the reasons, you know, that you couldn't find a way to drive up to this building anymore is because of that master plan. So that is certainly probably the most dramatic or visible change um, or set of changes that has occurred here at NNU. I would say, though, that um, the students have changed. And, and that's not to suggest that they're better or worse. They're just different. Um, as different generations of students um, come to NNU, they come from different generational contexts. And so um, that's one of the real dynamic features of working at a university is that it is constantly changing because those who come to us for an education are different over time. Certainly the students who enrolled this fall, this past fall, as first-year students, are very different from the students who enrolled in the fall of 1998. And so um, that, that is just a reality of higher education. Um, I find it quite stimulating, mm -hmm. um, but it also presents challenge. Um, the modality of delivery of education has changed dramatically. Um, and in you, among our Nazarene four-year schools in North America, at least, um, was one of the leaders in online education. And we have um, many of our graduate programs are fully online. And so um, that's certainly a change even over the course of the last 23 years since I've been here. So yeah, I took advantage of that. I, my, my last master's degree was in the online program. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and so I think all of those pieces, um, higher education, um, I would say, has always been known as somewhat tradition-bound, and some of that is really positive, really healthy. Um, the changes in our world, and in particular in technology, have stretched higher education. And then um, we were grateful 
that we had already been involved in distance education or remote education, uh, particularly when March of 2020 hit and the pandemic, as we've come to call it, um, became real and we had to send students home and we had to help them complete spring semester of 2020 in a remote setting after having been face-to-face on campus. We were fortunate to be able to come back face-to-face in the fall of 2020. The remote education, that online education, is not going away. Yeah. Um, and so we've sought to embrace it and to continually improve our delivery in that modality. Yeah. I think that's that online is now here to stay. Yeah. Nothing, nothing we can do about it. So I just, don't think technology is going away. No, no. <laughs> so just for our listeners, uh, this university is called Northwest Nazarene University a higher education institution of the Church of Nazarene. But the student body is not exclusively Nazarene. The the university doesn't cater exclusively to Nazarene students. So could you give us a little bit of breakdown of the student body? Sure. Yeah, happy to do that. Um, NNU's been around since 1913, so um, almost 110 years now. And from our founding, um, it has been a Christian university, but there are a lot of different ways to define that, that phrase of Christian university. The way we define that is not to um, only admit students who profess to be Christians. That is not what we mean when we say we're a Christian university. We define Christian university as a university that Um, has Christ at the center in our mission that only employs those who profess Christ. So all of our faculty and staff are Christians and involved in local Christian congregations. In that context, we also seek to integrate our faith into everything we do. So we integrate it into the classroom, we integrate it into our co-curricular, not with the intent of browbeating or indoctrinating anyone, but simply as a um, manifestation of who we are as followers of Christ. But then when it comes to our student body, um, we do ask for prospective students in our undergraduate program. I'm not even sure we do this in our graduate programs. But in our undergraduate, we ask them to let us know um, tell us a little about their spiritual journey. And some say, well, I'm not on a spiritual journey, and we're fine with that. We don't ask in order to um, use that as a criteria for admission. We ask so that we understand our students better. Um, But yeah, any student um, who we think um, has demonstrated that they're ready for college and has the ability to benefit from um, a college education, we are willing to admit. We do ask all of our traditional undergraduate students to sign and commit to a lifestyle covenant while they're students here. And again, that's not intended to force anything down anyone's throat. There are just some commitments there that we think makes this place a better community. So about um, how, is the, how is the percentage breakout? Of- yeah, so about... 35, I think, was the last percentage I saw. 35% of our traditional undergrads are 
would say that they are um, members of the Church of the Nazarene or come to us from a Church of the Nazarene, and that makes 65% of our undergraduate student body uh, non-Nazarenes. We have students from all different types of faith background and some from no faith background. Um, and then in our graduate programs, um, the percentage of Nazarenes would be much lower, probably more like 10%. And again, an array of, um, of others who either have church background or do not. Many of our students come to NNU because of the quality of our program and what they've heard about our program. And, um, and we're fine with that. So, so let's switch to talk about, you know, leading in difficult times. It has, these last few years have been difficult. I'm sure being a leader has been difficult all along, but I think we would all agree the last three years, or maybe the last five years, have been a different type of difficult. Right? Yeah, I would agree uh, with that. <laughs> you have the political situation, you have the situation with the racial unrest and cause for justice, mm-hmm. and right in the middle of all of that you have a pandemic that comes and shut everything down and everybody has to pivot so as a leader let's talk a little bit about how you've been managing that and some of the things you've been doing to stay on track yeah um it has been hard i'm not sure leadership has ever been easy but I can testify that it's not easy today. <laughs> um, and it hasn't been easy, particularly in these last two to three years, as there seems to have been a confluence of crises, to, for lack of a better term, that we've had to kind of find our way through. Uh, I have found personally that, um, that leading, at least from my philosophy of leadership, leading works best when we're in communicate in community, pardon me, and communication with others in the organization and at times outside the organization. One of the real challenges with the pandemic was that we had to make really rapid decisions because um, the information seemed to come at us really fast, um, not gradually, but really rapidly. And so in those cases, um, the consultation was more rapid fire. A a former university president of Whitworth uh, University, um, who was a friend and um, one who wrote some books that I read and that his philosophy of leadership kind of matched mine. His name was Bill Robinson. He wrote a book entitled Leading from the Middle. And um, that that describes pretty well, I think, my personal leadership philosophy. And, um, and so we've tried to do that, even through all of these challenges, by continuing to communicate with those with whom we're in community. Um, sometimes that's other leaders here on our campus. Sometimes that's um, others here on campus that some might not consider leaders, but that are certainly part of our team for I think everyone has a perspective that they can lend that is valuable as we try to together mm-hmm. uh, navigate through some really choppy water. And I think that's mostly how we've tried to engage all that we've had to engage over the course of the last several years. 
So that was the pandemic leadership. So, um, well, before we change from that, um, you know, we've had the the whole issue about mask mandates and not wearing masks, and now we're like the mask all coming off as of the last week, right? So, did you did you have how did you navigate that debate about what you should do and what you shouldn't do? Like you said, things were changing. Sometimes you had the president saying that if you had more than a hundred people, you had to have a, yeah. know, all these things changing. Yeah. What kind of feedback were you getting? How were you <laughs> navigating those kind of things? Well, I think every leader has received feedback uh, of a variety of uh, uh, types of feedback. Early on in the pandemic, for probably the first four months, um, I put together a group to help assist me as we were making pretty rapid fire decisions and just trying to get our head around the data and the information. Frankly, as we kind of settled into a pattern or decided we needed to settle into a pattern in the summer of 2020, we formed a task force here on our campus that we called obviously the COVID task force. And it included um, some faculty and some staff from a variety of disciplines and interests trying to get a broad representation, about a dozen people who met at least once a week. And they've pretty much continued that for the better part of two years. I have not served on that. Uh, That group has been advisory to me in my role as president. But I have found that part of my responsibility is to try to stay um, current with the latest information. Um, we found that we needed to decide as an institution what uh, information sources we were going to lock onto. Um, there are a lot of places you can get information nowadays. And so we had to decide in the midst of a lot of competing voices, which voices we were going to really focus on and rely on, particularly with regard to pandemic. And so um, CDC was one of those for us. And, um, and then we built relationships here in the state of Idaho and with our local public health district. For we always wanted to be a partner with our health district and understand what they were seeing in the greater community and how we could, how our behavior would affect that community, but also how we could lead in the community. I heard that at one point, the university was part of uh, either of a study or just doing on your own, like weekly testing and then yeah. turning in the information and helping to, to compile data and statistics. And yeah. One of the real game changers is that um, one of our professors who has an expertise in biochemistry helped us establish a surveillance testing methodology um, that, that, uses your saliva. And so for um, for the better part of a year, um, in during 2020-21 academic year, all of us on campus were issued small plastic vials. And um, anywhere from two to four times a week, we would put saliva in that vial first thing in the morning. They were picked up about 10 a.m., And then some of our students, our science students, under the um, supervision of this faculty member, would run PCR testing, not for diagnostic purposes, but for surveillance purposes. It really helped us keep a handle on what was happening on our campus, and um, we could literally, through that saliva testing, 
kind of watch the ebb and flow of COVID on our campus. It really helped us make decisions as to masking, as to distancing, uh, all of the details, all of our protocols and how they would apply here on our campus. And it was, I'm not convinced that if we had not had that surveillance testing that we would have been able to be face-to-face during all of 2021 or had our residential experience for about 750 or 800 students in residence halls. But uh, we were able to do that for both of the last two academic years, well, for 2021 and now for 21-22. So um, we still, we've kind of dialed back on the surveillance testing but we're still uh, submitting saliva. We're asked to submit saliva once a week, all of our residential students, all of our faculty and staff, and um, it gives us great insight. So was that data shared with the local health department or with CDC? Or um, There actually was a draft uh, memorandum that we communicated with CDC, and then local health district, yeah, we've been very open with our data with them, and uh, they have found it fascinating to watch our experience here on campus. It's not a huge sample group, a couple thousand people. It's a large enough sample that they have, I think, felt like they've received some insight. Um, And it, it would have been really hard, obviously, to try to implement such a thing for, like, a city. But for a campus like ours, it's been really helpful. So let's talk now a little bit about um, how have the political climate in the country affected you and your leadership here on campus? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I'm not telling anyone anything they don't already know when I say that um, over the course of the last several years, the political climate, in my opinion anyway, has led to pretty severe polarization. Um, not just political polarization, but um, in so many regards. Right. Um, and that has made, made leading difficult, particularly if your philosophy is to lead from the middle, because people have been running away from the middle to the polls, right? <laughs> um, and so it has been challenging. And I mentioned earlier how um, students, Different generations of students are just different when they come to us. Not better, not worse. They're just unique. And that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a dynamic part of higher education. But um, students deal with political issues differently mm-hmm. in the last three to five years than they did certainly when I was a student in college back in the 70s. Um, and even back in the early 2000s. And so I think from a leadership perspective, um, it has been trying to be aware, be keenly aware of what's happening all around us and here on our campus, and then um, seeking to continue to speak into those realities in ways that are consistent with our institutional values and with our institutional mission. Because those values and that mission are not to change and shift with the political winds or even societal winds. They're our foundation of what we do here. And so we try to use them as a filter and as foundation for everything we do. So give me an example of a political situation that 
occurred that you had to run through that filter and where did you end up? Sure. Do you have any? Yeah, well, the the one that I guess comes quickly to mind is the last presidential election cycle. It it was certainly, um, at least in my opinion, I could be wrong, um, and I'm I'm happy to be told I'm wrong. But uh, from my perspective, it was pretty divisive. And one of our four core values here at NNU is community. <laughs> yeah. So so we had opportunity to speak into a societal sense of divisiveness and to talk about that in the context of our value of community. And so how do we stay in community, even with those who have very differing political orientations or views? Um, And really, what is our community built on? Is it built on our politics, or is it built on something deeper? Um, And so it gave us opportunity to have... um, conversations that were unique to the particular context of what we were living in, but our value didn't change. It's just that that provided the foundation for a conversation within our political context. Did you have people trying to pull you into the political debate one way or the other? Oh, sure. You you should take a stand? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Uh, Clearly, that was true. And... um, and our sense was it was more appropriate to give people freedom to take the stands that they felt personally or to take to adopt the views, probably a better way to say it, political views that they felt were appropriate, but to always turn it back into the context of community. And in the context of community, we don't suggest that everybody should think the same thing. I mean, that that would be a really boring community, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure it's even possible. I'm, eh, it's probably possible. I'm not sure it would be healthy. So rather, we talked about, okay, so if we accept the reality that people are going to come with different views, what does that look like in community? How do, what does a healthy community do with those different views? We think part of it is that we... Um, continue to value each other regardless of our views for we're all made in the image of God. And so we value each other as humans. And then we try to create space to hear each other, even when it's uncomfortable and we disagree with each other, and not set it up as a debate, um, although there, there are those from time to time. And if they're done appropriately, that's not unhealthy but to more set it up as a conversation, as a dialogue where I can learn from you if you hold a different political view than I, and perhaps you can learn from me, not with necessarily a goal of convincing each other, but for both of us to understand each other better. Because as we understand each other better, our community gets stronger. Stronger. So... Did you host any of those? Did you you have like forums on campus? Or, I mean, you said you keep the community conversing with each other. So were there like facilitated conversations or this was just like speaking to the community about remembering our values and remembering how to how to get along with each other versus hosting forums where people can 
Yeah, on the political should. issues, we did not really host any institutional forums, um, although some of that occurred um, in some of our courses, because um, it was very natural, right, mm-hmm. in some of our courses for that to occur. Um, but on an institutional plane uh, or on our institutional context, it was more the latter, where we talked about um, this is a place of community. It's one of our core values. And so, therefore, um, this is how we see we should be living it out. Um, so it was probably more conversational around the values and then seeking to help each other live out the values. Did you have any of any of your supporters call and say, if you don't take this stand, we're going to withdraw our support? Because some pastors have said that. I've been in some pastors' meetings where pastors have said people have required them to make a stand, wow. otherwise they were leaving. <laughs> um, I am not aware, I'm thinking back, I am not aware um, either of those sorts of demands being made directly to me or to others who would have kind of more externally facing roles. Certainly, I'm aware that we have donors all across the spectrum, and um, I think that's healthy, frankly. Um, so, but I do not, not a political stand. I do not recall that ever occurring. Mm-hmm. So, how do you feel the school weathered that? Do you, do you think you, as you look back on it, do you would you say you did a good job weathering it, or? Yeah, I'm not sure how to grade us. I'm not sure what the grading scale is. You don't have to answer. I, I think I think that our community did not suffer. Maybe that's the best way I know how to. Mm-hmm. I don't think our community melted down or experienced damage as a result of those that political climate. And I think that's a sign of health. Join us next time as we conclude or a fascinating discussion with Dr. Pearsall on leading in difficult times and trying to maintain a healthy community within a university community that is within a larger community of a city itself. You can find more information on Northwest Nazarene University at nnu.edu, nnu.edu. And you can also find more information on Dr. Pearsall's biography there as well. Above the Noise can be found on most podcast directories, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and TuneIn. Like us on your favorite directory where you listen. Leave a review. Reviews are important. They make us more visible to a larger audience, and it also helps us know how we're doing. You can email us at AboveTheNoise24, AboveTheNoise24 at gmail.com. And please follow us on Instagram and Facebook.